0: Today's scripture comes from John chapter 1, verse 12 through 13 and Galatians 6. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good morning. My name is Aaron, and uh, welcome to our new space once again at the Stewart Hotel. And uh, we thought that in light of our transition to this new space, that we would do a four-part teaching series on what the church is. Because the church is not a building, but the church is the people. So we do not walk into church, rather, the church walks into a building. We are the church. And so we wanted to paint for you four pictures of what the church looks like. And they are as follows Number one, the church is a bride, number two, the church is a family. Number three, the church is a body. And number four, uh, the church is a unique kind of building. And so last week, we took a look at the church as a bride. And uh, today, we'll take a look at uh, the church as a family. And there are four things that I want to take a look at in regards to the church as a family. Number one, what does this family look like? Number two, how do we become a part of this family? Number three, what is the purpose of this family? And uh, number four, why we should love this family. Okay, so what does this family look like? Well, in the first century, uh, Christians started doing, they started saying something quite revolutionary and a little bit peculiar uh, because in the first century world, for the very first time, Christians began to refer to one another as brothers and sisters. And they referred to one another as brothers and sisters, not because they were biologically related so much as they were spiritually related. And these brothers and sisters also began to marry one another. And so the outside world thought this was a little bit strange because why would a brother marry their sister? Why would a sister marry their brother? And so early on in the first century, the outside world actually associated Christians with being incestuous. They also thought that Christians were cannibals because they always talked about eating flesh and drinking blood, and they didn't know that they were talking about the Lord's Supper. And so early on, Christians began to refer to one another as uh, brother and, uh, and sister, and the reason for that is because they actually believed that they were a family. They believed that the blood of Christ was thicker than the blood of their ancestors. Now, how do you know whether you believe the blood of Christ is thicker than the blood of your ancestors. So I want to do a little social experiment here. Let's imagine that all of us are in the dating world, and there are two people that we are seriously thinking up about as contenders. And everything about these two people is pretty much similar. Uh, Their level of attraction, their sense of humor... Uh, you're socially compatible, you have a lot of chemistry, same interests. Everything about these two people is the same, except for a couple things. With the first person, they share the same ethnicity as you, but they do not share the same faith as you. The second person, however, does not share the same ethnicity as you, but they do share the same faith as you. Now, if these are your two options which would you choose? If you would rather choose a person 10 times out of 10 who has the same ethnicity as you but not the same faith, it means that you believe that the blood of your ancestors is thicker than the blood of Christ. However, if you would choose someone that is not the same ethnicity as you but does share the same faith as you, it means that you believe that the blood of Christ is thicker than the blood of your ancestors. The earliest Christians believed, regardless of your ethnicity, social status, occupation, etc., that we were a family and that the blood of Christ was thicker than the blood of our ancestors, and therefore, they believed that the church in particular was the most tangible expression of God's family. And so church no longer was something that we attended, rather the church was something that we belonged to because we were now a unique type of family. So that's what uh, we are in terms of a family. We are not biologically related so much as we are spiritually related, and that union is even stronger than our uh, physical ancestry. Now, how do we become a part of this family? Let me read for us our first passage again from John chapter 1, verse 12 to 13. And John says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Just as my two daughters were born into the Chung family, similarly, if you want to be a part of God's family, it is something that you have to be born into. And as we take a look at this text, it's not something that you can be born into physically, But it's something that you had to be born into spiritually. It's not something done of natural human descent, uh, but it is something mystical, magical, spiritual that takes place. In other words, it's talking about a new type of birth. Or to put it another way, you must be born again. Now I hesitate to even use that phrase because I know that when modern people hear that phrase, you must be born again, or I'm a born again Christian, we think of two things. Number one, we think of a religious freak or religious weirdo, or we think of someone that's politically conservative. So we think of someone that's a religious freak, like maybe someone like Mandy Moore from the movie Saved, or we think of someone that's a religious weirdo like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, or we think of someone that's hyper, hyper politically conservative. But I want you to know that when scripture talks about someone that is born again, it is not talking about a type of person. Rather, it is talking about a person that simply believes and trusts that Jesus is God, that he died for our sins, he rose again from the the dead, and secured our hope for eternity. That's it. It's, It's someone that simply believes and trusts in Jesus. That's it. And so in many ways, this is where Christianity is different from religion and irreligion. So in religion, in order to be accepted by God, uh, you have to be a good person, have good moral performance, and if you live that, this type of virtuous life, then you're accepted by God. It's strictly based on performance, not on belief or trust. And in irreligion, if you want to be accepted by our outside world, uh, you have to have a certain number of accolades, worldly, fame, worldly success, and then uh, the, the society in our world will accept you, which is, again, based upon performance. But in Christianity, it's not based upon performance at all. In fact, it is irrespective of your moral performance. It is simply based upon your belief and trust in uh, the person and uh, work of Jesus Christ. And when you take a look at this verse again, it says, to those who believe, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right. And here, this is legal uh, adoption language that if you believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that God adopts you into this family uh, and you become a part of this uh, this unique and old fraternity. And nothing that you can do then can take that away from you. And I'll give you uh, an example of this. Uh, Some time ago, I was listening to a talk given by uh, a pastor named Rich Perez, who is a uh, pastor up in the Heights. And uh, he wanted his eight-year-old to play baseball because he had played college baseball as well. And um, his son was uh, actually in the dream scenario because it was bottom of the ninth, the bases were loaded, three balls, two strikes, and his son was trepidatiously up at bat. And his son was so nervous that he called the timeout, not the coach. He called the timeout and he, and he made a straight line towards his dad. And he said, dad, I am so nervous. And you know what his dad said to him? His dad said, son. Whether you hit a grand slam and win the game or you strike out, I will always love you and you will be my son. So he gives him this this really great pep talk and his son goes right up to bat again. The pitcher throws a ball. He swings with all his might and he strikes out. (laughs) His son was devastated and they lost the game. Uh, But in many ways, you can say, even though they lost the game, uh, that his son was a winner that day in the game of life. Because it was on that day that his son realized that no matter what I do, no matter how good my performance is or how poor my performance is, nothing can take away my status as a son of my father. And I really want you to know this morning that... um, no matter how you live your life, good moral performance, or sometimes really, really poor, that nothing you do can take away your status as a beloved child of God, because he gave you the right to become adopted into His family. All you have to do is simply believe. And when you enter into a relationship with God, you not only gain a new father, but you also gain a new family. You know, years ago when I was dating Hannah, and uh, it got to a point where it was getting serious and I had to ask her, per, uh, her parents' permission to marry her. Uh, you can use this, by the way, for those of you who are close to this. I told them, um, I want you to know that uh, you're not losing your daughter, but you're gaining a son. And they love that. <laughs> and, uh, and they were like, yes, yes. Uh, uh, And the truth of the matter is, uh, they didn't really gain another son. They got another mouth to feed uh, on the weekends whenever whenever he comes there. But the truth of the matter is, they didn't really gain another son. I gained a new family. You know, my mother-in-law treats me like I am her own son. She always asks me if I've eaten. (laughs) And even when I do eat, she's always like, are you going to finish that? Eat the last bite. She literally treats me like her own flesh and blood, even though we're not. When I married Hannah, I gained a new family. And similarly, when you become a Christian, you gain a whole new family. We are part of the oldest and the greatest fraternity in the world. And as soon as you become a Christian, you are adopted into this family, uh, and you become a, a brother and sister in Christ. Now, what is the purpose of this family? We talked about what it looks like, how to become a part of it, Now, what is the purpose behind it? Let me read for us Galatians 6. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Uh, We've all heard the expression before that there's always one black sheep in the family. Uh, But in this family, just so you know, before you join it, if you're not a part of it yet, there isn't only one black sheep in the family. We're all black sheep in this family. And what that means is that this spiritual family that you now become a part of is highly, highly, highly dysfunctional. There is no perfect spiritual family. And I like the way that D.A. Carson sums it up uh, on the first page of our bulletin. And Carson says, the church is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common ancestry, or common jobs. In this light, they... We are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. A church composed of natural friends says little about the power uh, of the gospel. When you become a part of this family, what you're doing is you're joining your imperfect self to other imperfect selves as well. But I want you to know that when you do that, what you're doing is something special because it is here, the church this laboratory of love that you learn how to love people that are different from you. You learn how to be friends with people that you ordinarily would not perhaps be friends with because now you're family. And so we have an obligation uh, towards one another. And there are two things that, uh, according to Galatians 6, we're not going to go into this super, super in depth, but there are two things that Galatians 6 talks about in terms of how we ought to treat one another as this new family of believers. And so if you take a look at verse 1 again, verse 1, it says, uh, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. And the word that is used here for restore is a medical term, which means to snap a fractured bone back into place. And I know a little bit uh, about this because this happened to me once years and years ago during a uh, high school bra- basketball practice, and I fractured my left arm, and my bone was sticking out of my arm with a thin layer of skin, barely covering it. And so they rushed me to the hospital, and the doctor said, you have two options. Number one, I can do surgery, which I don't recommend, or number two, I can snap your bone back into place because you're young enough. So I was like, yeah, just snap it back into place. And so he says, OK, so I'm going to count to three, except he only counted to one. And he counted to one. He snapped my bone back into place. And I screamed so loud, the birds in Africa flew out of their trees. <laughs> and uh, he snapped it back into place. I screamed, and my arm was restored. Uh, <laughs> now, Now, imagine, hypothetically, hypothetically, Imagine if the doctor said something like, you know, I think, I think um, this is going to hurt you a little bit too much, so I don't know if I want to do it. Imagine if the doctor said, you know, this is going to inflict a little bit of pain on you, and I don't want you to hate me. I want you to like me, so I'm not going to do it. Imagine if the doctor said that. How impaired and hindered would my life be if I walked around with a broken left arm, I couldn't function, I would never be healthy, but the doctor knew that the short-term pain, although painful, would prevent me from experiencing long-term pain. And similarly, we are called to be a people that restore one another. We are called to be a people that snap fracture people, snap fractured spiritual bones back Uh, into place. And I have to say that one of the most encouraging things for me as a pastor is when I hear people say things like, "I, uh, I don't know what to do because my friend is in this situation and I feel like they shouldn't be doing it. Do you have any words of wisdom on how I should approach that person? I love conversations like that because there's a level of ownership. You know what's not as encouraging? When the conversation goes something like this, I feel like this person is doing something that they probably shouldn't be doing. Can you go and talk to them about that? And the reason why they sort of don't want to do that is because they're non-confrontational, which I understand none of us wants to be confrontational. They wanna deflect responsibility. But I want you to know that when you do that, uh, what you're really displaying is a love more for yourself than the other person. And So usually I go through Matthew 18, which has protocol on how to sort of talk to people. And it says that when you see someone in a certain situation, that you should go and talk to them. And if that doesn't work, then bring two, other, two or three other people into the situation. And if that doesn't work, then tell it to the church. So there's a protocol that's there. We are the last line of defense. And honestly, practically, pragmatically, we can't, we, we can't do that for everyone. And nor should we, because we are a family. We are called to keep one another accountable. Now, if you're too eager to do it, you're a bully. If you're not eager to do it all, at all because you're non-confrontational, you just want to be liked, it means you're chicken. But if you don't want to do it, but you know you ought to do it, so you're sluggishly going to do it, it means that you're a friend. And in Proverbs 27 it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. We are called to be a wounding community, but as we do so, we do it gently so we need to have a spine we need to have thicker skin but we must also have tender hearts now how do we restore one another gently as this passage says when, when once again the, my rule of thumb is always if I'm too eager to confront someone then I know that I must not but when their pain becomes my pain when their sorrow becomes my sorrow and it hurts me as much as it hurts them then I know that I'm ready How do you restore someone gently when you lead with love? And when you do that, the other person knows that you're not just trying to win an argument, but you're trying to win a person. And that should always be the goal whenever we confront other people. So we're called to be a restoring community, but if you take a look at the next verse, we're also called to be a community uh, that carries one another. Actually, before I jump into that, let me read a Bonhoeffer quote on the first page of your bulletin uh, from his uh, seminal book, Life Together, And Bonhoeffer says, Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. This is really good right here. The Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother or sister, his own heart is uncertain, his brother or sister's is sure." We are called to be a restoring, compassionate community, and we are called to be a community that carries one another's burdens, and so read with me the next verse where it says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill Uh, the law of Christ. If to restore someone means snapping a fractured bone back into place, to carry someone's burden is the equivalent of helping your friend move their large couch up a flight of steps, only you're on the bottom of the steps and all of that couch's weight, all of that couch's burden, it falls on your shoulders. That is what it means to carry someone else's burdens. And we are called to be a community uh, that does that for uh, one another. Their pain becomes your pain, their sorrow becomes your sorrow. Um, And whenever people are typically burdened or going through difficult times, what it really feels like sometimes is like a dark cloud that is just following them wherever they go. So what does it look like to carry someone's burden that feels this way? It means simply to stand right beside them underneath that dark cloud and just be with them, because first and foremost, carrying someone else's burden or accountability is not a finger that you point at another person's face so much as it is an arm around another person's shoulder. If it wasn't for the church that I grew up in, I really don't know where I would be today. And this church was not perfect by any means, but they loved on me, they cried with me, they walked with me, they picked me up to go to church, they forced me to tell my story. If I didn't, even though I didn't want to, they forced me to tell my story over and over again. They hugged me. They hugged me. They laughed with me. And it is because of this family uh, that I was healed. And similarly, we are called, as Paul Tripp would say, to make the invisible grace of God visible to one another. We are called to be a tangible expression of God, the Father, uh, to uh, one another. Philo, uh, the philosopher Philo once said, be kind, uh, for everyone you meet is carrying a heavy burden. And every one of us is carrying something. And we are called uh, to carry each other's problems and struggles that we feel. Now, why should we do that for one another? Why should we uh, love the church uh, in this way? And it's simply because God loves us, even though we're highly dysfunctional and we're messed up. The most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16, and it says, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have an eternal life. Now, this verse says something very interesting because it says, For God so loved the world, he sent his one and only Son. I thought that you said that we were all sons and daughters of God. I thought that you said we were all children of God. Why does John 3.16 say that God sent his one and only Son? I thought we are all sons and daughters. Well, the reason why we're all sons and daughters and children of God is because God's one and only son was rejected. He was abandoned, he was forsaken, and he was orphaned on the cross where he, on the cross, carries our burden. And the burden that he carried on the cross was far heavier than a couch up a flight of steps but the burden that he carried on the, uh, on the cross was the weight of the sins, uh, the world's sins. And in Isaiah 53, it says that the weight of the world's sins was so heavy that in Isaiah 53, it says that he was crushed for our iniquities. But because he died for us and he was crushed for our iniquities, by his wounds, by his stripes, by his blood, we are healed and we are restored. Our relationship, our fractured relationship is, with God is restored, and our fractured relationship with one another is restored. And when you see Jesus hanging on a cross, carrying the weight and the burden of the world's sins and yours and mine on his shoulders, how can we not deadlift the burden and the weight and the problems of one another? We must. So I wanna close with three applications on how we can do that uh, for one another very tangibly. And the the first comes from a quote, again, on the first page of your bulletin. It's the final quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer says, this is actually, I think my favorite quote on community. And Bonhoeffer says, those who love their dream Of a Christian community, more than the Christian community itself, become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. You know what Bonhoeffer is saying here? He is saying this. People who love community are terrible at creating community. But people who love people are good at forming community. Now, what's the difference between the both? People who love community, what they really love is not people, but what they really love is their ideal community, like the boys and girls that I had in college or when I was in my early 20s. These are, these are my close friends. Why can't this church produce that kind of same friendship that I, not, that I had in the past? People who love community love I- the ideal of a community, but people who love people, they know that people are messed up. They know that relationships take time. They know that there are sociological factors that uh, play effect on how we make relationships today. People who love people understand that friendships do not happen in a microwave, but it happens in a crock pot, And therefore, they will love people regardless of how long it takes regardless of how much they had to sacrifice. There's a story about Tim Keller and uh, Kathy Keller, and one day Tim invited this couple over for dinner, and Kathy is a little bit more blunt, and so she was like, why are you inviting them over for dinner? We already see them once a week. Isn't that enough? And uh, he had somehow eventually become uh, friends with them, and he had grown to love them. If we wait to have feelings of love to act lovingly, you may never act lovingly. But if you act lovingly first towards people, the feelings will eventually follow. And we must be a community that love people more than the ideal community if we are going to form uh, a strong community uh, with one another. Uh, the second thing that I would say uh, is that uh, we have membership classes later on uh, this month and early next month, and as Brian mentioned before, it's an opportunity for you to define the relationship with the church and the church to define the relationship with you. And uh, it's a formal way of saying, I want to be committed. I want to be a member of this specific local church and this community. And one of the unique things that we do in uh, when you become a member is something called life groups. Now, we have Sunday once a week, we have community groups every other week, and we have life groups for members once a month. And I have to say that there are story upon stories of people within these life groups becoming friends, roommates, bridesmaids, and even groomsmen. Uh, And a lot of good friendships have come out of our life groups. And there are other times where the life groups are a little bit more difficult because people are difficult. There are some life groups where... Uh, It's a little bit harder to meet up sometimes because it's not as much of our priority. Uh, There are some life groups where you sort of have to extract uh, stuff out of them because the only thing that they ever want to talk about is work because it's it's at the superficial layer and they don't want to talk about stuff below the iceberg, which all of us have. There are times where you have to be more vulnerable, you have to teach your group vulnerability in order for other people to be more vulnerable because vulnerability is contagious and people don't usually like to open up their hearts in their life. All this to say that this is training grounds for you to have the borders of your heart extended and grow. If you're only around people that you like and people that have similar interests as you, your heart is never gonna grow. But when you're around people that are a little bit more difficult, that need a little bit of extra grace, Your heart, the borders of your heart grow. And last I checked, I think all of us want to have bigger hearts. And life groups are a tangible way for us to be in this laboratory of love, this training ground where we learn to love one another more. And last but not least, uh, if you're newer to our community, one very practical thing is this. The more people you know at church, the happier you are with the church. The less people you know at church, the more unhappy you are with the church. And so if you're newer to our community, I wanna encourage you to get plugged in and meet people. One tangible way of doing that is by going to Mustang Harry's where you can eat pretzels the size of this music stand and you get to meet people and you get to introduce yourself to people and to connect and plug with people. That is one tangible way for us to uh, provide a platform for you to connect with as many people as possible. All right, and finally, I just want to close with uh, one of my favorite lines from the movie The Greatest Showman, which is loosely based on the life of P.T. Barnum, the founder of Barnum and Bailey Circus. And uh, we're all familiar with the story, and P.T. Barnum sort of recruits this group of misfits and outcasts and outsiders to join his circus. And in the movie, uh, this woman with a beard uh, says to P.T., the world was ashamed of us but you gave us a spotlight, you gave us a real family. And similarly, God has given us a family. And so whether you grew up in a broken home or a dysfunctional family, whether you know your parents, whether you're an orphan that's been adopted, whether you feel like you're, you, you still don't have a father or mother even though you do, whether you're an only child, I want you to know that you are part of a special family. We are broken, but we are all dearly loved. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, loving us. Thank you for sending us, our elder brother Jesus Christ, to die on behalf of our sins. Thank you that eventually Uh, One day uh, when we see you face-to-face, you will step off from the throne as judge and be our father and that heaven's courtroom and trial will turn into an adoption ceremony. We thank you for the hope that we have in you and this family of believers that you have given to us. Help us to love the church just as you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.